No one will be admitted after the guests check in. This week's episode is part one of a two-part episode from a single discussion based on the Hellraiser series. Ben the Beardo and I, in this first episode, discuss Hellraiser 9 and then Hellraisers 1 through 3. Next week's episode, we will discuss uh, Hellraiser 4 through 8 and then the 10th one as well. Uh, we hope you enjoy it and uh, hopefully breaking them up makes it a little easier to digest because our conversation ran quite long so uh enjoy and we'll see you next time all right we're ready we're ready yeah you want to start with the song you're the song boy not me hey come on it's time to sing this song oh yeah all right we're talking about hellraiser tonight it's bad not good motel hell gives you wood i wish i didn't start this song it's bad yeah, this is like my least favorite thing that we've started when it comes to recording. Because they only go down in quality. Anyway, I'm Ben the Beardo. I'm Dick the Fetty. And that's right, guys. We made an episode, and it's just in time for spooky season. Is it the episode you want? Probably not. But we're here. We're doing it. And that's the most you can ask for. Because we're you don't pay us. We're queer. We're ready to drink some beer. Oh yeah, that's right. Let's relapse tonight. I said, come on, let's sing this bad song. It's not even a song, it's like a cheerleader chant. Thank you. At like the worst football game. <laughs> I don't even have feet. Oh. So we are talking about the Hellraiser movies tonight. Yeah, we decided that... With, uh... Minimal effort? Yeah. <laughs> what was the thing we could do that would be the most entertaining to us and the least amount of effort? And so we came up with a 23-page outline about all the <laughs> Hellraiser movies. But, uh, no, I mean, so we're just gonna say right up top that this is not, uh, it's a serious subject matter that we're not taking seriously. No, it's not a serious subject matter, but... Is it? No, it isn't. Um, no, but I mean... This is not going to be uh, a four-part in-depth look at a career like Shinya Tsukamoto or a series or anything like that. This is us trying our hardest to remember movies that we <laughs> mostly watched over a year ago. More than a year ago. More I think than a year we ago. we watched the third one back when Alexa was still on the podcast. Yeah, that's accurate. That was a while ago. Well, but that, I mean, the time it took <clears throat> us between three and then five, six, and seven was an eight. Eight was the longest wait because you can't get it anywhere. Which no, that's nine or nine. Yeah, nine. You can't get it anywhere. Which but yeah, we watched Hell World probably within the last two years, and this is sort of the point. We don't really remember, but I do have an outline that may help us to jog our memories as to some of this stuff. I remember the first one pretty well, but anyway, yes, please. So the Hellraiser film series is a series of films that started with the. Uh, titular Hellraiser in 1987 and then continues on to this day somehow even though it shouldn't and we we want to talk about it so we decided tonight uh we would finally watch the most forbidden Hellraiser of them all Hellraiser Revelations as far as we know yeah which is the second to last Hellraiser also known as Hellraiser 9 Revelations and it's from 2011 and part of the reason that our watching and completion of the Hellraiser series has taken so long is that this movie is not watchable online. You have to buy a copy, and I don't even think they're in print anymore. No, I don't believe they so are. So we had to torrent this. The torrent was excellent. It was top-tier torrent. Yeah, as good as a movie filmed this way could be. Sure. It still looked like garbage. Yeah, of course, yes. But it was clear as day. But I will say... And this might be getting a little ahead of uh, the review on this particular movie, but Mexico, 
wasn't orange. No, I give him credit for that. It was just a. It was just the inside of a room in a dark alley. I think Skinner's <laughs> alleys had more character, but um, yeah. So we want to start with Revelations number nine because that's that's just sort of how this whole thing is gonna go, and it's also the freshest in our minds since we literally were just tormented with this piece of fucking trash, and. Uh, we're going to work backwards. Well, we're not going to work backwards from there. We're going to then start at the beginning. Yes. So. <laughs> but uh, tell 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 the people about Hellraiser 9, Ben. I, I don't know what I expected. <laughs> First of all, so I'm sure there's quite a few um, true crime aficionados who listen to our podcast. And every time I see whoever the guy is who played Hellraiser in this... Stephen Smith Collins, it, it just makes me think of uh, one of the letters from Son of Sam where he calls himself the Chubby Behemoth. Mm. Is the only like description I can give because he looks like Uncle Fester got fit and got a new job, and they also give him these really awful, really big contacts. But anyway, two very rich white kids are, I guess, originally planning to go somewhere else. Disneyland. Disneyland. They live in California. They live in, yeah, basically outside of LA, Hollywood Hills, yeah. it looks like. So they get on the road, and the one friend, Nico, is like, guess what? We're going to go bang prostitutes in Mexico. But, but you have to understand that this is shot as sort of a found footage thing. They're, they work that angle partially. I mean, it starts as a found footage film, very briefly, but... Yes, but... It's like ultra close-up jangle shots of, like, a dude's chin and, you know, cheek or whatever while the two are talking to themselves. And the only thing that I will say, to the movie's credit, was that in that very beginning opening car part, I thought that the dialogue was relatively believable as the way that two dickheads would talk to each other, like... Two rich, young dickheads. Yeah, yeah. like, it was actually kind of... It felt pretty real in the sense of that... Like, the entire rest of the movie felt, like, awful, scripted, you know, whatever. But that was, like... That felt like a real dumb conversation that would happen. I also felt the same way when they got to the Mexican bar, but we'll get to that. Sure, So, Nico... It was Nico and Steven, right? Yeah. Nico says to Steven, we're going to Mexico, Tijuana, Donkey Show, all that. Then it cuts to their car getting stolen, I guess, while mm. they're in Mexico. And then suddenly, boom, they're in a Mexican bar, which is just corrugated steel walls. No, they don't do that. His car's stolen, and then, boom, he's opening the limit configuration. Okay, yeah, that's right. So, the, yeah, <laughs> the movie is a mess. Uh, so, yeah, it, it cuts to that. Then it goes back, or do they go to the no, family? Yeah, then it goes to the mom watching the video. Guys, we just watched this movie. Yeah, but let me let me <laughs> let me say. So I have to imagine if you're this far into this already, you either have seen some amount of Hellraiser and are willing to listen to us just bumble along about it, or you can't. Is it possible that you haven't seen it? If if it's true, Crash Course, Cenobites, they're like priests from hell who are looking for the ultimate experiences and there's a square box that's a quote-unquote puzzle box that seems pretty easy to open so puzzle yeah. is like loose terms um and when it's opened they get summoned and then they take someone's soul back to kind of hell sort of and then it changes from movie yeah. to movie but they get tortured sometimes they become a scene by it yeah and basically each movie deals with the pinhead the who's like the guy on all the pictures and is not his name in anything but is his unofficial name and you know stuff happens and they they typically revolve around people's guilt and sins and whatever and so this movie is does not stray from that in the sense of it's all about you know bad people sort of getting their comeuppance but then kind of not and yada yada and what also definitely a lot seems to be about people seeking, like, a further version of depravity. Yeah. And then getting more than what they wanted. Yeah. And they did that so ineffectively in this movie <laughs> that even the worst Hellraisers before this could not touch 
the pile of filth that this movie was. I wish filth is the wrong word. That would imply that there's some kind of actual depravity to see here. It's just ineptitude and shittiness. I mean, Hellworld Debtor was pretty fucking awful. This felt like a Hellraiser fan film. Yeah, that's true. And a bad one. Yeah. I mean, the thing about this that was more than I feel like any of the others, but maybe I'm just softened by the passage of time, is that, like, because it's digitally shot and it's, it's like, you know, Z-grade Hollywood actors and all the rest, like, it just has this, like... It's like a bad TV show, but it's worse than that. Like in every kind of department. Like I, I don't know. And yeah, it's not good. But go on. So it cuts back to the family after they they open the box, and it's the mother of Stephen, not not Nico, which will be important. Watching a video of them opening the puzzle box, which is just like. Like, you're just like, yeah, that's a weird thing that happened, but my son's gone, so I'm real sad about it. Yeah. Uh, then walks in Steven's super hot sister. Moderately hot. Listen, comparatively to the rest of the movie... Sure. It's like, uh, it's like that joke, I can't remember what comedian made the joke, but like, uh, ugly person stands next to hot people, they become hotter by proxy. Mm Mm-hmm. It was like that for me. Mainly, we were just hoping that she would get topless the whole time. Yeah, she wasn't terrible to look at. She just was, like, she wasn't Hollywood hot. She was Bollywood hot. Yeah, like if she came up to you in a bar, you'd be like, no, get away from me. You're not hot enough for me. Oh, yeah, that would happen. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't want to dwell really too much on the specifics of the plot because it's almost pointless, but it's like... But I, I want to get to one point, though. Okay. Which is that... There's all this family drama stuff happening in the house. Everyone's sad. Ne- uh, yeah, Nico's parents come over for dinner. Yeah. I guess that's something they do now since their sons disappeared together. But they go back to the bar in one of the scenes, right? And it is just, like, so believable as to, like, two rich, white, young dudes in Mexico acting a fucking fool in a Mexican bar. Sure. And, and it's just... They end up killing a hooker, or maybe she wasn't a prostitute. I don't know. I don't think that she was. Because he tells her, like, he... Steven says, so, let's back up. The narrative of the film is broken up in the sense of it starts with, like, what happens, then it cuts to they've been missing for a long period of time, mom is watching the video, then immediately they're having a dinner party where everybody's, like, we're pretending we're cool. The reason that the other... The other parents, the parents of Nico, are over is that Nico was also dating Steven's sister. So they, I'm sure, would have known each other to some level anyways because of that. They're all having this dinner party, yada, yada. Then it keeps cutting to what happened while they were away. And then eventually Steven shows up at the house. And in some, at some point, they cut to this scene of them at the bar. And, uh, yeah, like... They're both trying to bang this, you know, Stephen, who's the shyer, less depraved, not one in charge. He's the beta to, you know, Nico's Chad is like, you know, all talking. Soy boy beta cuck. Yeah, exactly. He's talking to this cutie (laughs) pie and then it cuts and like he's coming into the bathroom, you know, and it goes between like, oh, it's shaky cam, handy cam footage versus like it's a movie footage. And then Nico's just drilling this chick in the stall and then Stephen passes out after getting all upset and then... It goes back to the family. Then it cuts back to them in the bar. And Nico's like, we need to get the fuck out of here. Blah, blah, blah. Like, I want to go. And then he's like, oh, the girl's still in the thing. And he's like, oh, was she like, you know, trying to get you to shake down? Like, she was a hooker or whatever. And he's like, no, I just need to get the fuck out of here. And he's like, wait, she okay? And then they open the stall. And you see this. And she's got a bunch of ketchup on her head. Yeah, she's got a lot of ketchup on her. It's it's not, it's Tex-Mex sauce or something. Hamburger accident. Yeah. And uh, she's one of the only, maybe the only Mexican Latino looking women in the whole in the of whole Mexico. movie. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, and then we cut back to the family. And basically it's like, it, they, part of it plays almost like a home invasion film, but like an insanely dumb one. So like. As soon as Steven shows up and then the girl finds the 
the the sister finds the lament configuration in the bag. That's... But they 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 couldn't bother to film him like th- coming through a portal or appearing or anything. No, she he just comes walking with the sister. Yeah, and and it's like all like what the fuck is happening? But she she fingers the box, and then while these like, they're having <laughs> conversations, it cuts to the Cenobites, and it's like it seems like they're in their basement, just like listening <laughs> to them. And then you're like, oh wait, are they in the box? And and it's very unclear and very dumb. It just reminds me of apartment <laughs> living where like you'd hear your neighbors like yelling at each other yeah. and you're just kind of looking around. Like, huh, what are they? God, that 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 daughter of theirs is really a hellion. And uh, and as far as I know, they never stated in any of the movies that they're in the box, right? They're not in the box. I it's hard to say cuz I know that part of the fourth and maybe it's the fifth movies. There, people definitely get trapped in the box, at times. Yeah, but like they don't live in the box. I mean, not really. It's they have their own dimension. I would say that the lore for Hellraiser is inconsistent <laughs> at times, and is get me Clive Barker on the phone. Yeah, it's mostly plot driven. Uh, it's not anything else driven. There's no concern for the fan base. So, uh, yeah, it doesn't, you know, so Pinhead may be really actually a very small man who lives in a box. <laughs> We're not entirely sure. And I will say that, to me. yeah, like they've never redecorated their room, which I find to be surprising, but, um, you know, and then the movie just keeps going in the sense of eventually, like you find out that, Nico and Steven get the box from this weird vagrant guy who kind of looks like a version of Jack Black. I kept calling him Jack Brown. He uh, was, I didn't know if he was dirty or they were putting brown makeup on him to make him look like he was Mexican. Mexican. Yeah, it was really... That scene was exceptional. Like, it's just... Because the thing about this movie was that it was like somebody had seen and remembered lines from the original two Hellraisers and then was like, ah, I think I can, like, paraphrase those... <laughs> But make them dumber, and then we'll like, make them different enough so we don't get sued. <laughs> yeah, even though we've got the license, it was, it was just like everything reduced to its dumbest parts, and then didn't make sense on top of it, which is already the five movies before this. Yeah. So it's so relentlessly brutal, and they're just like constantly like, oh, we're explorers of other dimensions beyond pain and pleasure, and blah blah blah. And when you're not in Hellraiser's Deep, you're like, okay, like, I know. Like, I <laughs> I don't need a crash course in what the Cenobites are about. And, and uh, I guess, spoilers? Uh, can we talk about, just kind of get... Listen, we, yeah, we're, we're going to spoil this movie and... And all other ones. Because, you know, your own personal opening of the puzzle box will be having to find a place to watch this and watching it yourself anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. maybe we can lessen the pleasures if you will yeah so we saw early in the film you see a new xenobite you assume it's nico but then things start to happen and i was like oh shit like because you eventually see steven starts killing these mexican sex workers but they're all like the one's a thai chick and it's not to say thai women can't be in mexico but like no but like she's not mexican has an american accent and like they didn't even fucking try no and uh and the other one's some kind of not it didn't seem Latina to us, but I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. I, and, and like, he's killing the women. She spoke Spanish, though. Oh, yeah. She did speak Spanish, so. Okay. I, there I'm are right. two people in the entire movie Who the entire time that were in the yeah. Spanish, yeah. And uh, they fucking, you know, she gets killed, her little baby gets killed, and basically he's feeding the blood to Nico, yeah. who shows Which up is skinless. and so, like, the most edgelord shit ever. Yeah, and it, I mean, it harkens back to the original film and the films before it, and especially the original one, which we're going to talk about in depth in a second, but basically, it's all this dumbass, just, it's, it's like the dumbest shit, and then eventually the big reveal is that Nico killed Steven and took a skin and then Steven was taken by the Cenobites and is there with them. And so Nico shows back up at the house and is going to offer Steven's hot sister in place of him to the Cenobites so he doesn't get taken by the Cenobites. I just love Steven being tiny pinhead because it it seems like daddy dom and like little submissive. Yeah. 
It's like, ooh, ooh, Mr. Hellway, so please. Yeah, there is a hot scene where before the big reveal, Stephen, well, Nico as Stephen, makes out with Stephen's sister and, like, touches her boobie, and then she has a flash of him cutting off her boobie, and she's like, oh, no. And I was like, okay, I'm going to jerk off soon. But <laughs> And and she almost, she was going to try to bang Nico's dad? Yeah, yeah, she was. So that was cool. Uh, but they didn't go anywhere with that. And that was the, the big one. Well, there were many flaws in the film. But, like, the problem was that all of the brutal visuals were just, like, the most rehashed, ultra-Xeroxed, like, down... It was all the same shit they've done in all the other movies. Yeah, or... Yeah. And and then there was no nudity, which is... There was. Was there? Yeah. The, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, sex workers, yeah. The Asian sex worker. And then... There was a real quick flash when they were, I guess, in, I guess what we'll call the, the oh, puzzle yeah, box, yeah, yeah, yeah. where there was, like, two chicks, like, I guess, covered in blood, like, kind of making out, but it was real dark. Yeah, you're right. You're and right. really, we just wanted to see Steven's sister. Yeah, that was, that was really it. She, I mean, I know that Kirstie in the first film doesn't get nude as far as I can remember, but, uh, you know, it was... Yeah, but, like, I, She's a heroine, whereas this chick was not really the heroine, so... I, I akin it to, um... The one, what Halloween movie was it with the girl with the big four. fat bappers? It was four. Four. And like the whole movie, like they're Robert like... Robert Zadar's daughter. Yeah, they're the like on show. display. There's a scene where they're just like hanging in a t-shirt yeah. and you're like, we're going to see him. Yeah. And Steven's sister in the whole movie is wearing this like, I don't even know. It, it seems like the peak of like 90s fashion. Doesn't even some, seem like something that somebody would have worn in 2011. No, it, it would have been 2002 appropriate, but yeah, it was, uh, you do, I, they have a sort of nip slip. It's like such a hard shot pant to the side that when she bends over her dying father, you get to see a little bit of the side of that puffy nipple. Not that I was looking, but yeah, there's no intentional, uh, After how many episodes of this podcast you're like, but I'm I wasn't a, looking, I'm, I'm, I'm respecting the woman who is in this movie. Yeah, I'm not a pervert, but, uh. Yeah, it was... Uh, so anyway, on our next sexual fetish episode. <laughs> it was bad. Uh, and I think we should name the parties involved to blame. So it was directed by a Victor Garcia. and uh, Has he done anything else? Yeah, he did the next one. and Oh no! He did the last one we're going to watch? I believe so. Oh no, I take it back. That's by some other asshole. Uh, and then... It was written by Gary J. Tunnicliffe, who directs the next one. So the the guy who wrote one of the worst movies I've ever heard directs the next movie, uh, which we will talk about later. So it was not shocking to us that this was easily the worst Hellraiser ever that we've at least seen so far. Yeah, no, definitely not. You can 100% tell. Like, just from the trailer that we had watched... 40 times we just knew and it's it's just the one thing you have to get right more than anything in any of these movies is making pinhead look good and he looked terrible yeah so i will say this is the final little trivia for this film the film was produced in a matter of weeks due to an obligation on dimension films part to release another hellraiser film or risk losing the rights of the film series Due to the quick turnaround time and rush production, series star Doug Bradley declined to participate, making this the first entry in the series, which he does not play Pinhead. And then he it was released the... in a single theater for the crew screening, and that was ostensibly open to the public, then released to DVD in October 2011. And I read a little bit uh, of a post, it was like uh, what Doug Bradley had said online when the movie was first announced, and basically it was like, yeah, I got told like a two days before he's supposed to start shooting that like here's the script for the new hellraiser will you come please be in it and he was like no this is bad <laughs> and like you got four days to shoot it you know not actually it was a little longer than that but basically like here's this you ex- have one night to shoot yeah, it. you have this extremely limited time frame to take this you know because in the different movies penhead hellraiser whatever the cold man the the dead priest or yada yada he uh he has different levels of screen time. In this movie, he's in it fucking constantly. and But, like, that's the hilarious part, because, like, the consistency of him in it is just... 
him standing in that chain room looking around and hearing everybody talk. Yeah, that's true. So now and Chatter that, had titties in this. Oh yeah, that is true. Chatter had titties. That ain't wrong. So now that we've talked about the ninth film in the series, let's start about talk about the origins of Hellraiser. Go yeah. Okay. Are you gonna, what is it? The uh, uh, Forlorn Heart. What was the name of the story? I'm not telling you. Okay. Tell the audience then, Dick. The Hellbound Heart. Hellbound Heart. I was Doy. close. Forlorn Heart. It's probably something stupid. Okay. So the Hellraiser universe, uh, or you know, cinematic universe, I guess expanded universe, is that what we want to call it? The nightmare that is the Hellraiser series is all thanks to Clive Barker, who was born October 5th, 1952 in Liverpool, England. Uh, basically, so Barker was a guy who's been involved in theater and writing and eventually making films, although not that many. He's had some pretty rough experiences in that regard. Uh, but he started in uh, school with theater productions and collaborated on six plays with the, the Theater of Imagination in 1974. Cool. And then was later a solo writer of plays called A Clown's Sodom and Day <laughs> of the Dog. For, Wait, yeah. you're just going to gloss over a clown Sodom? No, I'm not glossing over it. That's why I put it in there. I was like, that's a good title. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it sounds like a fun time. For the Mute Pantomime Theater in 1976 and 1977. It's just an all-clown version of Salo. Yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty fun idea. You're going to eat that shit. Yeah, his honestly, his a little bit of this stuff reminds me a lot of Shinya Tsukamoto's story in the sense of he was involved in avant-garde theater and things like that. He, he, I mean, Tsukamoto, like basically, once he got the camera in his hand, it was he was going to be a director, but then took time to do theater. Whereas Clive Barker started in theater, went into writing, and then eventually started doing some movies and stuff like that. Very similar to uh, Stuart Gordon. Yeah. Right. So, he co-founded the avant-garde theatrical troupe The Dog Company in 1978 with former school friends and up-and-coming actors, uh, which included Doug Bradley, who plays the iconic role of Pinhead in the Hellraiser series, and Peter Atkins, who would write the scripts for the first three Hellraiser sequels. Over the next five years, from 1978 to 83, Barker wrote nine plays often serving as director and including uh plays such as the history of the devil frankenstein in love and the secret life of cartoons in 1982 to 83 he also created another three plays for the cockpit youth theater which sounds pretty sexy uh, so, so i was about to say the same thing and then he uh started to focus more on his writing so his original stuff uh, writing was focused on Short story horror writing. Say that five times fast. Short story horror writing. Short story horror writing. Short story horror writing. Yeah. Short story horror writing. Yeah. Uh, which were collected in what were called the Books of Blood. And then he also wrote... Wow. Yeah. Uh, a novel called The Damnation Game in 1985. And then moved into modern fantasy and urban fantasy with horror elements in Weave World, 1987. The Great Secret Show in 1989, The World Spanning Imagica in 1991, and Sacrament in 1996. Never heard of any of that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so when the Books of Blood were first published in the United States, Stephen King wrote on the was quoted on the back of the cover saying, I've seen the future of horror, and his name is Clive Barker. I feel like I have seen that quote. I don't know where, but I know I've seen that quote. Yeah. I feel like... Stephen King may have quoted said that about different people too. Yeah. Not not as a diss against Clive Barker, but like I think if you pay Stephen King in enough coke and blow, or well, not anymore. And, yeah, now yeah, but this was the eighties, and he likes his corgi, which yeah. I'm really about. Sure, her name's Molly. So, uh, let's see, and he also this is sort of apropos, but has a series called Aberat that's from the last decade or so that's a young adult novels that are illustrated and written. Oh, really? And, yeah, Disney bought rights to do a Harry Potter rival series type of a thing. How'd that go? Which would have been interesting. It got caught in development hell and then was canceled. But but he still got paid, right? Oh, I'm pretty oh, sure he yeah. did, yeah. I think that 
for all of the tough times Clive Barker has had with his movies and stuff, he's he's always gotten his checks. I don't think he's quite as cynical as uh, John Carpenter, but no. I, I don't think that he's he's done all that bad. So, so his time in Hollywood started. He wrote screenplays for the movie Underworld and the movie Rawhide Rex from 1985 and 86, respectively. I'm sorry. Yeah. He wrote the screenplay for Underworld. Not not with Kate oh. Beckinsale. But Rawhead Rex? Yeah. We need to watch Rawhead Rex. Yeah, which were both directed by George Pavlo. But he was displeased with how his material was handled. He moved into directing with help from New World Pictures, which I'm going to get to in, in more in a second. And made that switch over. And then Hellraiser was classic, you know, made four times as much money as they spent on it, which is wonderful. And then he did 1990... It hasn't even happened yet. It's 20,000 years in the future. 1990... 1990? Thank you, yes. He did Night... 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 This is too hard for me. Could you just say that he did Nightbreed in 1990? He did Nightbreed in 1990. Have yes. you seen Nightbreed? I have not. Oh, that's a good movie. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. It's like, uh, uh, what's the movies uh, where they say Wolfman's got nards? I'm forgetting the title. You know what I'm talking about? No? You're the worst. I thought you knew horror movies. Anyways, that was a flop, and then he did Lord of Illusions in 95. And also, Candyman was based on one of his short stories. Yada, yada, yada. Monster Squad. Don't know what that is. It's a. I don't want to say it's a children's movie, but <laughs> it's kind of like the Goonies if they fought all the Universal monsters. Okay. It's really good. And. Now I'm forgetting the name of his movie. God, this, this is going poorly. Nightbreed? Nightbreed is like that, but. Like, kind of like there's, like, a bunch of different monsters, and it's a little bit more looser, not as edgy as, like, Hellraiser and shit. Sure. It's not as good as Hellraiser, but it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. So that's our brief little overview on Clive Barker. Just very briefly, we're going to talk about the Hellbound Heart, and then we're going to get into the reason for the season. Okay, so the Hellbound Heart was a horror novella. First published in November 1986 by Dark Harvest in the Night Visions Anthology series. The plot is very similar to the film Hellraiser, which is... No. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of times they change it. Even if it's the same director, they could change it. But it's there's there's a couple things that are a little different. But for the most part, it's, it's pretty spot on. Uh, I say that based on Wikipedia descriptions. And not reading it. Exactly. So, uh, of some interest is that... Clive Barker worked as a hustler in the 70s and 80s when he was writing, when he couldn't pay the bills. So, he was a sex worker? Yes. That's incredible. Yeah. And so, these experiences uh, working in sex work in both the UK and in the United States and going to SNN clubs and other stuff like that, he kind of thought, like, I got to put this into my work. And so, that's where a lot of the stuff in Hellraiser comes from. Which, like, obviously, the Cenobite designs are BDSM gear influenced, but it's not like it's, oh, I saw this in a German fetish mag. It's like, oh, I've been to bondage clubs. I think we should do this. So, um, basically, he said the experiences made him want to tell a story about, and this is in quotes, good and evil in which sexuality was the connective tissue. And he talked about how... He would go to these SNN clubs and see people getting pierced for pleasure and fun or like other kinds of crazy, you know, like harder stuff, which, you know, the Cenobites stick to the next level. And when Hellraiser was in production, uh, he was considering naming it Sadomasochist from Hell, which would have been a little bit of a mouthful and also dumb. Oh, so, it's kind of fun. I mean, it's kind of fun, but I'm imagining a w- much more... That sounds much more like a... Like a film. Yeah. Yeah. So... Probably some motorcycles in there. I, I know. Yeah. I can see it in my head, It's but it's it's a very different... There's no Doug Bradley. No. Or if there is, it's more cock Way and more ball. titties, too. Yeah, and cock and ball torture. Yeah. I want, like, ZZ Top, Doug Bradley, and then and maybe um, Tom Flanagan just getting a nail through his dick. Mm. So... Bob Flanagan. Bob Flanagan, not Tom. Pause the episode. We need to go. I need to take care of something. (laughs) Okay. 
So that brings us to Hellraiser. So, you know, he's already got some success with the writing and he's done these two other movies and what? Nothing. I'm nothing. You just give me this glazed over look like I'm, I'm just, I'm just still thinking about like all of the people who went and saw Hellraiser for the first time and they're like, that dude sucked my dick. That guy sucked my dick. <laughs> that guy. Well, I don't know when you're. I don't know when you're working the corner as a sex worker or whatever you do, that you say like, "Hi, I'm Clive Barker, famous author." You know, I don't know that that's how. I don't know that they would know Clive Barker. It's not like he's in the movie. I, I, that's how I introduce myself to people. I'm a sex worker. <laughs> my name is Ben. No, no, I say hi. My name is Clive Barker. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> Clive Barker is everywhere. He's yeah. like the media. So, Clive Barker got together with this guy, Christopher Figg, and they made a deal with New World Pictures, which is founded, which was a production studio founded by Roger and Gene Corman, which I didn't know. Mm -mm. And New World Pictures is interesting because there's a, a several directors who got their start there. Jonathan Demme, who did Caged Heat for them, who also did Sounds of the Lambs mm -hmm. and uh, the Stop Making Sense Talking Heads live concert DVD. Jonathan Kaplan. Ron Howard. Oh. His directorial debut there. Paul Bartel, who did Eating Raul, but also Death Race 2000. Joe Dante. Uh, and I know there's a couple other ones. And they also did releases of foreign films by Ingmar Bergman, Federico Fellini, and Akira Kurosawa. So. But Death Race. race Death Race 2000 is the one that really got to you. Yeah, it really stuck in my head. I was like, oh man, that's a cool movie. So. It was Death Race, it was 2,000 of them. There's 2,000 races in that film. <laughs> Over 2,000. Oh god. Alright, so originally the film was set to be uh, shot at the end of 1986 in the course of seven weeks. New World Pictures decided to expand the filming period to 10 weeks. The working title was Sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave, and then it was Sadomasochist from Hell, and then eventually uh, Clive Barker was thinking Hellbound, but producer Christopher Figg said, let's do Hellraiser, and they went with that. And basically, Clive Barker says that he had no idea what he was fucking doing, and was surrounded by a lot of really nice, very competent people who were able to make his book into a film that was actually good with real technical skill. So, uh, you know, he's, he's speaks very fondly of the whole experience and is like super grateful. And one of the things that, especially for the people that listen to this podcast may know is that originally coil was set to do the soundtrack for the movie, which is they're like a famous weird industrial post-industrial experimental, um, British group and the studio eventually said no you've got to use Christopher Young instead who was coming off of the Nightmare on Elm Street 2 score and Invaders from Mars and they went with a more traditional film composer but eventually those recordings that Coil did were released much later and also some of their motifs were incorporated into the score by Christopher Young but it's just kind of if you're into, like, cool industrial stuff. And, you're, like, really into the just real and stuff like that, yeah? Yeah, well, they have a whole section about it on Wikipedia. It's just funny. It's just some nerd like me was like, gotta talk about the Coil stuff! Gotta put the Coil oh, in! God, I can't forget about Coil. Coil are one of those groups who had, I think, uh, extreme influence on a lot of things, but are still really unknown. But, anywho. Should we get into the movie itself? Plot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, basically, uh, the movie starts off Frank Cotton is bad man. He's ultimate hedonist. Naughty man, bad he's, man. He's exhausted all the pleasures in life, and he he winds up with the lament configuration, which is this you know puzzle box, and then he uses it. Boof, gone, disappeared. Oh, I can only imagine that. Like you just, like is that just what happens? Like you just come so much that you're like, I need demons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so then cut to. Uh, his brother and um, the brother's wife, who had an affair with Frank, move into the house where Frank was living, which is, I guess, like an old family home, or I forget exactly how that plays. It was it, Frank's house, and I think they're there to fix it up and sell it? Maybe. 
They definitely move in, though. Yeah. And uh, Larry, I think, is the guy's name. So Larry's Larry moves in with, uh, oh, you know, Becky or whatever her name is, Ross or Deborah, Judy, Judith, and Marilyn. <laughs> Morgana. Let's go pull up the IMDb. Well, I have all the people. Oh. Yeah. Julia. Like I said. You fucking... Kirsty is the name of the I daughter. know that Kirsty is the daughter. But anyways, he moves in with his wife, Julia. Their relationship strained. She was fucking Frank right before they got married. He's still kind of butthurt about it. And while Larry is putting stuff up in the attic where Frank disappeared after he fingered his box, uh, some of his blood drips on, and then Frank kind of gets brought back from the Cenobite dimension because he's been hiding out from them because they're really scary and they always want to do bad things to his body. And the next thing you know, Julia's up there and she finds him and he's all like skinless and goopy and he's like, oh, please help me. If you just bring me like... Goopster. If you just keep bringing me a couple dead bodies, I'll get back to normal. And... Please, I just need some blood for my little little bones. And, And so... So Julia starts seducing men and bringing them to the house and brutally murdering them, and then he feeds on their bodies and, and all this stuff. And Kirsty, who is the hot daughter and really wonderful as a final girl and all oh, the rest. Oh, gosh, she's great in it. Yeah, is like, she hates her stepmom, and she uh, doesn't want to live there, so she doesn't, and she's, like, worried about her dad and thinks that stepmom's running around on him, which she is, kind of, and then discovers the secret of Goopy Goopster Frank and uh, then tries to basically save her dad. And um, she eventually stumbles on the lament co- configuration and winds up solving it and comes face to face with the Cenobites and says, if I tell you where Frank is, will you let me go? And they say, yeah, but he's got to confess to some stuff and yada yada and things happen. And It's never really made clear how killing other people makes them whole again, is it? No, but it's cool. Yeah, it's true. And basically, like, the one of the sweet parts of the movie is that Frank accidentally stabs Julia when he's trying to kill Christy after he tries to bang her when he's wearing... Because uh, doesn't he do... He's wearing her dad's skin at the one yep. point, and then he tries to bang her, isn't that right? Yep. And, uh, and then um, he accidentally stabs Julia, and then he just drains her to complete his transformation. And then... He's chasing down Christy and he confesses to escaping the Cenobites and this, that, and the other. And then they show up and, you know, he they take him back to Cenobite world. Yeah, it's pretty good. And the the thing about it, uh, and like that's the basic, you know, like that's the plot. And that kind of matters more than any other plot for any of the other films because they mostly derive from that. Although kind of also not really because they just eventually start using spec scripts for completely unrelated Hellraiser thing and then shoving the Cenobites in there wherever they can to get, you know, keep the license. It definitely feels that way. No, I mean, that's literally what happens. So I was right. Yeah, the last three films are all just spec scripts that they were like, ah, throw some Cenobites in there. We got Hellraiser. (laughs) But, um... Super glad I called that when we were watching all those. Yeah, so... uh, I know I'm hogging the time, but I, I just will say that... The first time I tried to watch Hellraiser, like, so when I was a kid growing up in the 90s, I saw posters, I saw, like, you know, you would see Pinhead as figurines. toys. Yeah, like, it was like, what is this Hellraiser about? This seems so fucking cool. You know, you have no idea, as is the case. Like, Freddy Krueger, all over Nightmare on Elm Street. Same thing with uh, Jason, or Jason's mom, and uh, Michael Myers. Like, they're really in their movies, whereas... The Cenobites are like, have 10 minutes of screen time if it's that much. They're the climax, usually. Yeah, right. They're supposed to be used sparingly, and it's not... Well, they're all, they're complete and utter power. Like, there's, you can't actually really stop them, so once they're in there, like, they're in there. Yeah. But they're not, like, typically out to fuck with people. It's just, like, if you choose to go to their realm, then you gotta pay their price. And I appreciate that. They don't force anyone to do anything. It's always your choice. Well, well, yeah. I mean, it's your choice to open the box. Well, yeah. You opened it. We came. You know what you know what this was, right? But when I was a kid, I desperately wanted to know what all this was about. And then, by the time I wasn't a kid and thought too highly of myself, I didn't really watch horror movies for a long time, which I've talked about here on here a lot. And then when I finally watched Hellraiser, I was like, "This is it." I was like, "I've been waiting this long for this." Like it just. 
because the there's a couple things that happen. One of which is they they did in post production overdub some of the voices because all of it was basically British acting and voices, and so they wanted to make it more American friendly, and so they redubbed some of the performances less so they sound Brits. Yeah, less good. And then the actress that plays Julia is perfectly good, but like she she's. I guess she's a MILF. Like, she's, she's yeah. a MILF. Like, I mean, she's a mom she's I'd slide that, like, once. Late, like, late 80s, it's early 90s, like, like hair, and, like, it's supposed to be attractive, but I just can't get behind yeah, it. Yeah, it's, like, definitely the kind of chick you would bang in an airport bathroom if you were, like, had a couple, you know, tying a couple on after a business trip and whatever. But yeah, like not not a femme fatale for me, and so the whole idea that she was seducing men, like I mean, people are lonely, they want to fuck, but like that really kills it for me, and I just couldn't, I struggled to get past that part of it, and couldn't enjoy it for what it was. None of them were all that great looking, though. Like sure. there was like a squirrely dude, a fat guy, like yeah. I know, but yeah, she did have big fat bappers, though. She did have fat bappers, but yeah, I mean, I just remember being like so disappointed. I remember posting about it on the forum. I remember it was like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's classic. And uh, I was like, nah, I don't know. And then we watched it together all these years later and started what has now become this this episode, which was, we watched it and we're like, this is a fucking ball. And it's so goopy. You know, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, it's classic. I'd yeah. say it's a downright classic. My, my main issue with the whole series, and this might be sacrilege, but like, I never understood the big spinning pillar. I always thought it looked stupid as shit. Sure, yeah. Because um, it's just a big spinning pillar. I mean, the first movie is like, what they do with the money they had, you can see they're utilizing everything they've got to make the goopiest, grossest movie. The two parts that really kind of... There's a couple of visual things that are just like, what the fuck? The engineer, that monster that shows up towards the end... Yeah is just doesn't look good isn't necessary is dumb and to my taste the spinning pillar ah, first movie it's fine after that you're like there's really love this pillar especially in revelations it looks so skinny and lonely yeah and they're like but hey we got the pillar from all the other movies you remember the pillar yeah remember bad. pillar yeah. remember pillar boy he's here yeah doing his thing but keep keep uh and uh, but like i i'd never seen any of them until we'd watched the first one together. And it was it was one of those things... Out of all of the horror movies that we, as people who consider ourselves pretty high horror aficionados, um, have not seen, Hellraiser was, like, the one that's, like, what do you... Like, if we talk to other horror, horror people, they're like, what do you mean you haven't seen Hellraiser yet? Because, um, we, you know, we saw all the other, like, really classic 80s stuff and stuff like that, and... But I, I was I was blown away, and I love the first three, like hands down. Uh, did you ever finish the third one? Well, I mean, we I watched it all ostensibly, but we'll talk about that. So yeah, um, and and I loved Hellworld. Hellworld has a special place in my heart. Sure. Yeah, I mean, and I think that one of the things that makes the series unique is that it started much later than other horror franchises. Uh, like compared to Halloween or Nightmare on Elm Street or um, Friday the 13th, like it's much more of a 90s franchise in my mind, even yeah. though it's really late 80s into the mid 2000s. But because of the way the movies were done, everything from Hellraiser 3 to Hellraiser 8 feel like the 90s, even though there's like a 15 year difference because it's, they just. Well, where they shot them and everything else, the aesthetics of the later Hellraiser movies look a decade older than they are. It's oh just like God. shocking how shitty they look in that way. But I can't believe that we're just now finally getting a fucking remake of what Hellraiser. No, they're not doing that. At least according to the research that I was reading, are they doing it now? With the female pinhead, did that get canceled? I think so. No. I thought it was back in development hell. And I apologize. I said that this movie made quadruple its budget. The movie was made for $1 million. It made $14.5 million. 
So the studio is just like fucking goosh and fat loads all over the place, which takes us right into the immediately done sequel. What? No, they're still doing it. Oh, okay. It's going to be on Hulu. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's Hulu produced. And uh, Clive Barker is in... Is jo- is part of the production, which is done. They already filmed it. Hmm. So, and we've got that hottie playing Pinhead. Hmm. So, that'll be fun. Anyway, I guess we'll have another one to watch. Hmm. We'll do a small update episode when it comes out. <laughs> no, we won't. We'll just review it at the beginning of the episode. Did you... Do you have anything else to say about the first one? Only that it, for the level of violence, the graphic violence they have and all the rest, it's shocking that they got just an R rating. Basically, they, they had to do very minor tweaks for the MPAA, and as the movies became more successful, they had to do more and more tweaks to the point where when you get to the third one, it's like the gore is fucking laughable for a lot of different reasons, but they started to care much, much more. But the original movie is like, pretty shocking like that's a just regular r-rated film especially because the level of sex and the mpa they're very prudish yeah so it's uh that was mostly what they took out was some sexier sort of vibes out of things but i think it was the last horror movie hootenanny we had mm-hmm. i played it before you were able to come because you're like i don't care we've seen that movie a bunch of times dude i'll, I'll show up you got you can play that one now save these ones yada yada and I think it might have been the first I think it might have been the movie that we starred with and one of our friends was there Ryan with his daughter and I was like he showed up with his daughter and I was like we're starting with Hellraiser is this okay for you yeah no I remember that and he's like yeah it's whatever just don't tell your mother and I was like this feels wrong yeah great parenting but, you know, whatever, not our problem. So, so yeah, so then, you know, the movie makes a bunch of money. They're immediately like, let's do Hellraiser 2. And Clive Barker says, I'll stay involved, but I'm not directing this. In part because he was going to do um, Nightbreed and, and, you know, had other shit going on and whatever. So, Tony Randall comes on to direct, who was who worked on Hellraiser with Clive Barker, helped edit, I think he was the un credited editor for the film on top of a different editor and said like yeah i'm into it let's do it and they started planning both the second and the third movie at the same time they had ideas for like how they're going to expand the world and this is when studio involvement like immediately starts to become more and more of a thing their other problem was that uh new world pictures despite having a bunch of successes like their last movie also was having a bunch of uh, financial hemorrhaging happening simultaneously. So they started with a much bigger budget and then it immediately got cut. So a lot of the things they wanted to do for the film got cut um, and they had to do some rewrites and all the kind of usual bullshit. And I would say that, you know, a lot of times horror sequels, like there's always that unique for a good horror movie. It's like a unique mixture of things that come together to be like, Oh, this is like a new Like, here's the start of a new IP. Like, there's enough new and fresh things that, like, oh, it's cool. And obviously a sequel is always going to have... It might have the same recipe for success, but it's not going to have the novelty. That doesn't mean... Novelty, especially in the day where we rewatch shit all the time, I care a little less about novelty. Rewatchability is part of it. And it's... Like, I know that there are so many flaws with Halloween 2, like, from the original franchise, but the... Titties. Way more blood. Yeah. Well, They're blood. Blood, yeah, yeah, at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I fucking love Halloween, too. And, I mean, you also, you look at... Uh, you, you look at Nightmare 2. I love... I Nightmare 2 is great. Yeah, and, I like Nightmare 2 better than the first one, by far. Yeah, and it's it's crazy how different of a direction they went immediately. I guess they kind of did the same thing with Friday 13th, because it was Jason after the first one, but it... That, like, whole, like, possessed killer thing is, like, something that usually happens later in the series. Yeah. Not, like, the second one. And they came out swinging with that second one. I love that fucking movie. The second, uh, Friday, I love. I don't know if it's better than the first. 
Because I think the first really hit something. And they never wanted that to be a series anyway at first, but... Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, point of the story is I, I think that Hellraiser 2, you know, it loses what it loses in novelty. It, it, I mean, it has some, like, kind of dumb parts of it, but I would say pretty much the entire series has, like, there's always some dumb shit in all of these movies, even at their best. But it does all, it uses all of its additional budget, it's it's more assured directing and all the rest, I think, to make a better movie in a lot of ways. Or I don't know if it's better, bigger. but it's more fun. Yeah. And basically, Kirstie winds up in the psych hospital after all the things that happen, and her dad starts reaching out to her, showing up skinless, laying on the ground, <laughs> writing in blood, help me, I'm in hell. You've yeah. probably seen a meme of it. And... Uh, there's this whole sort of like dream so warriors. There's a family circus meme, I think. Yeah. <laughs> there's like a whole dream warrior style subplot of like some of the other psych patients are trying to like help her. And basically, of course, the guy who runs the psych ward is like secretly obsessed with the lament configuration. So he gets the bed that Julia dies on in the first movie and then kills a gets a psych patient to cut himself over it and then she starts to come out and then he's got to give her dead bodies so she's not a goopy goopster and then frank comes back and they wind up in hell and then eventually the cinnabites turn uh the doctor into a cinnabite and then he fights with the other cinnabites and jesus wept yeah it's uh well that's from the first movie is it yeah Oh, I thought it was from the second one. I thought it was the doctor. No, that's Frank. Mm. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no. We, we we off and on send each other the gif of Frank Cotton with his face all... Like, that... It's And, again, it's one of the things where, like, the visuals of, like, all the chains shooting out and hooking people and splaying them... It's, like, cool, but, like, don't think Not too hard about it. the 50th time you've <laughs> seen it, though. It's yeah. Like... It just becomes very silly very fast because it's, like, this doesn't even... It doesn't have the same the same weight as like someone getting their head caved in a movie or like a head exploding or a person on fire where you're just like, I want to see that over and over again. Yeah. Like you see it nine times, you're like, all right, I mean, like, I know you guys got to have other weapons though, right? Yeah, like, and I appreciate the effects work that went into this, but like, give me something fresh. And I will say that like, for all of the incredible faults of the third film, which we'll be jumping into in a second... They at least get creative. So So creative. But, yeah, I mean, the second movie is just, like, more violent. It's more visually insane. There's, you know, I I have not watched it in a while. I've watched it twice. I really, really like it. Like, and the, the visions of hell, there's some really dumb, shitty, like, just running, but, like, not much happening types of parts uh, that are less interesting. But I would say that, a lot of it, especially the first half of the movie, is very strong. And there's also this whole great part where uh, Kiersey is dealing with Frank in hell. And, like, there, it just gets all sexy and rapey. And not to say that rape is sexy, but you know what I mean. It's like... <laughs> it's, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it's just like this, like, real, like, you know, scuzzy type shit going on. And it's, it's just like, I like it. Like, it feels really depraved. It, and it feels still feels on brand for, like, that vibe that the first you movie is so trying to sell. You so 100% would end up opening the Lament for configuration. Oh, yeah. No doubt. Yeah. 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 That's, that would be my bag. So. I really, for, like, how, you know, they couldn't have done it, like, crazy good at the time frame, but the way they did Hell in that movie I thought was super cool. Yeah. It wasn't fire and brimstone. It was just mazes and fucking walls and a giant crystal in the sky that was the devil. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was, it was different. And I think the movie's budget, I don't know that I found exactly what it was. I want to say it was like four million or something, but it brought in 12. So not as good as the first movie, but only a couple million less, which is not too bad. And I do just want to mention that. I think I talked about this before, but, oh, yeah. So, I know I said that Pinhead is never referred to as Pinhead in any of the things and whatever. We, we, you know, shorthand, it's easy to refer to him as Pinhead. He's called, in some of the expanded books that came after the Hellbound Heart, 
the Hell Priest, a.k.a. the Cold Man, just so that's out there. They couldn't say the Cold One. It had to be the Cold Man. The Cold Man. He's chilly. Doesn't yeah. have a jacket. Well, his nipples are always showing. Yeah. So And, and flayed. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the second one is a fucking romp. And, and let's... Um, yeah. Speaking about romps. Hellraiser 3, Heaven on Earth. <laughs> Go. Yeah, so... Possibly one of the most 90s movies ever made. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. A club owner whose name I think was JP. Sure, okay. Uh, buys this sculpture, this pillar, the, the pillar, uh, that contains the puzzle box in it. And also Pinhead's face. Yeah. <laughs> and he starts. He, he looks like uh, Han Solo frozen <laughs> carbonite. And he starts feeding the pillar. And the titular pinhead tries to destroy the puzzle box. Titular? Yeah. Is he in the title? Yeah. Hellraiser Pinhead? Yeah. Hell on Earth? Yeah. The Hellening? The Hellening. Hell World. He tries to destroy the box to, you know, be free from hell forever and, and rule Earth. And it's all trying to be stopped by this reporter who sees... The puzzle box shoot chains out and kill somebody, I think. But she she gets wise to what the club the club owner's doing. And he's just a real big piece of shit. Isn't there another lady in it too? Yes. Who knows JP or is banging JP. J- JP's just banging all the chicks because he owns the boiler room. And that's his club. And he starts feeding people to the pillar. The pillar man. Yeah. It's... It's a JoJo reference. That's it. Oh my god. I just cracked the code. <laughs> the one thing that we didn't mention about the second movie that does play a role in this one is that you see uh, the the guy that becomes eventually Pinhead, pre-Pinhead, he's World War II, or World War One guy, and he gets the box and opens it and gets taken there. But it was like a good guy before that. And it comes into play because his soul gets something with his soul in the third one so let me just say that when we watched this i was preparing for my first ever trial and we we reviewed it on this podcast when we first started the podcast like it's one of our earliest episodes and i barely was able to watch it because i was also trying to prepare for i had trial the next day and was like yes i will still record a podcast the night before and be wildly stressed so that was an awesome move by me. I was preparing going through my trial binders. It was a horrible fucking nightmare. I don't... I just remember images, but none of the plot other than CDC No Bite, so... Yeah, that was the tale. That was the best part of the whole movie. Yeah. Where he just starts turning people into Cenobites, like, right away. Yeah. No pomp, no circumstance. Like, you're a Cenobite now. Yeah. And the, the one is... I think it was actually referred to as CD Head. Yeah. In the fucking movie. And yeah. shooting CDs out of its mouth. There's one that had, like, a camera head. Yeah, well, he was the camera operator. Because the CD guy, I think, was, like, the DJ, right? Yeah. And then the camera operator for the the news anchor, the main lady, that was, like, her camera guy. And he he suddenly has, like, a camera coming out of his head. And I think he, like, crushes somebody's eye with his camera eye or something. Maybe he shoots lasers. I don't remember. I don't remember the third one that well. Yeah, it was, uh... It was a little bit... Of a disaster. It's so fun. It's so fun. It, the whole club scene where everyone starts getting killed was dope. Yeah, they have all this like horrible CGI put into it that was done in post. And basically, like the there was already all these plot outs for the movie before it came out. Uh, like I said, Clive Barker had ideas for what it was going to be like. And originally the director from the second one, Tony Randall, was supposed to do the third one and had this big downer idea and all this grimness. And they were like, no, we're not going to do that. And the movie before it was made came out. uh, The rights got bought from 
new pictures by Miramax slash Dimension Films. And so Harvey Weinstein steps into the picture to taint and put a cloud over the whole rest of these proceedings <laughs> and is very directly like involved in saying like no to this and no to that and yes to this and yes to that. But and this is still when they were coming out in theaters, though. This was the second to last the- theatrical release, yeah. yes. And so originally the movie was going to have a heavy metal score. It was going to have a downer ending. It was going to be this, that, and the other. And... Uh, director Anthony Hickox was put in after uh, the first director left and it, there was a lot of concern because he had done horror comedy stuff so Baker sorry rather Barker said like please don't fuck this up please don't make this a horror comedy <laughs> <laughs> and basically after the movie was done there's two stories as to what happened in post-production so there's one that says there was a suggestion to the director that he use a non-linear editing system called Ediflex, which was made to do like digital computer editing. But this idea was abandoned because it was a gigantic fucking pain in the ass, and this is early computer days. I mean, this this movie came out in 1992, so like, yeah. you have to imagine how fucking brutal that would have been. It wasn't Toy Story. It was not Toy Story. So... So Hickox, the director, says Bob Weinstein loved the rough cut he saw, offered Hickox money to do additional effects work and to redo the ending, and this resulted in the use of the computer imagery in the film, which was the first time there was CGI in a horror film. It looks like that. It is. <laughs> I do remember being like, holy God, like, oh man, it is rough. Uh, and they added in more gore, even though they made the ending happier, although I don't remember what the fucking ending is at all. And uh, Clive Barker says that uh, Coupin showed him the work print. He was unimpressed. He declined his executive producer credit as a result and criticized the film's ending and the low-budget effects work. Then Weinstein came to him and said, what's your impression of the, the rough cut? He said, it's fucking trash, basically. And he, Barker himself, was involved with adding in some of the gore, the nightclub massacre, the CGI, etc., and uh, as a result of his post-production work, he was involved and got a or received an executive producer credit, and also the film was put under Clive Barker Presents Hellraiser Three. <laughs> so it's hard to say who's at fault here, and those are two very different stories. But basically, like a group of white men got together and made a series of decisions that said, "Yes, this final product is a." a thing that should be put into the theater and it still made more money than the second one. So yeah, it feels like if a Buffy the vampire episode, Buffy the vampire slayer episode got an R rating. That's how nineties this movie feels. Yeah. It's between the, the effects and just like the design work and everything else. Like it is just so, it feels so 90s and so, like, almost, like, yeah, really, Buffy is a great example. It really has that kind of, like, a TV horror campness. And yet the movie received some of the best reviews. Like, the first movie did well critically in the UK. It got very mixed reviews in the United States. Roger Ebert, who, of course, hates horror movies, was like, oh, like, who would like this trash and blah, 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 and all this kind of shit. Well, he's dead now. I know, good for him. So, but <laughs> this movie actually got a lot of good reviews. It's just like so baffling. People are like, that's a solid sequel to the uh, Hellraiser franchise. And uh, best one yet. Yeah. Did I you mean, see the guy spitting CDs? And it's funny because for all of the extra gore they added in, they still had to take stuff out. They had MPAA problems more than ever. Uh, and you know, for basically all these movies, you can see their uncut versions. If they were cut, the later ones are all direct videos, so it's a non-issue for the most part. But yeah, it's just like a hot fucking mess. Like, and I, the the thing, the other thing I remember a lot is that at the end, like at one point, Penhead's in a church and he's doing this Christ pose, and the candles are like shooting fire yeah. up. And I've even done some glitch art that is on the Motel Hall Instagram page that yep. you can see from when we watched it. and uh, We go way more into it, so we're not going to dwell too much on it. Yeah, but um, check out that old episode, whichever one it is. I mean, it's it's got to be way back there. Just listen to all of them until you find it. We're not going to tell you which one. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for the first part of our discussion on the Hellraiser franchise. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll be back next week with the second half. Later, nerds.